0: Snowballer, I am Chris Rall, and it is Thursday, May 27th. On today's show, the Utah Jazz offense explodes as they beat the Memphis Grizzlies in Game 2. That is coming at you in a second. Before we get there, as is tradition on this show, a daily tidbit about why gambling should be legal in Utah. So I have these random ways that I like to bet. Uh, One of those ways is when a team's back is against the wall in a playoff series, I like to bet them in the first half. So last night, the Jazz are in a game two. They've lost game one at home. They're the one seed. There's a lot of pressure in this game. And I say to myself, the Utah Jazz, they got to come out. They got to go nutty in the first half. So it makes Utah minus five and a half a reasonable bet. So I bet that. And I go up to the game. And the Jazz are doing what I expected. They're coming out with energy. They're playing nicely. There's a moment in the second quarter that I'm sure everybody has seen at this point. Uh, It was probably the sports highlight of the night. Rudy Gobert and John Morant meet at the rim right in front of me. And it's a great clash of two players who refuse to back down. Rudy Gobert, the guy who at the rim says, come one, come all. I will try to block anything you do at all times. And sometimes that means I'm going to get dunked on and look like an idiot. And I'll keep coming back because that's what I provide. And John Morant is the exact same offensively. He's going to get the ball and he's going to run as fast as he can to the hoop. And he's going to try to dunk on you. And if you block him, he'll say, good, I'm coming back and you're going to see me again. So they have this moment in the second quarter where they meet and Gobert has a two-handed smash against Morant. And we're going crazy and freaking out. And it was just one of those moments that you get in a playoff game between two really high-level players uh, in what amounted to a must-win game for Utah that you, that you watch and you celebrate and you go, oof, this is really special. So why gambling should be legal in Utah because when Rudy Gobert packs somebody's ass at the rim with your money on the line, it will make you freak out four times more than you normally do. With that, a word from our sponsor, Traeger Grills. With your and you always Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. The Utah Jazz lost game one to the Grizzlies on Sunday night. And Monday's show was all about the questions that I had coming out of that game. And moving forward, how they would apply to this specific series and for the Jazz, hopefully more series moving forward. The three-point shooting, the volatility that comes with that, and how reliant the Jazz are upon that specific shot. Rudy Gobert's defense uh, and how that translates to the playoffs first and foremost, and how that translates in a Memphis series against a team that led the league in points scored in the paint. Uh, and the Mitchell to Donovan injury, or the injury to Donovan Mitchell, and his absence in Game One and the void that created, that lack of a isolation score and distributor and the trickle down effect from having your best offensive player gone and what that meant for other players. So these were the questions after game one. Um, And game two is coming at us last night. And so I'm settling down saying, okay, this is a very interesting series where these questions are going to be answered. Now it's a prudent time to take a tiny step back and, and realize This postseason for the Utah Jazz is very important for many reasons. I want to read a quote from Sam Amick of The Athletic to set the stage for not only this series, but this entire postseason run for the Jazz. This is a huge postseason for Utah. After a long wait, the Jazz have crossed the regular season threshold from being a good team to being a great team. They have gone 52-20 and in the regular season, garnered the top seed in the postseason for the first time in generations when the previous high seed for a Snyder-led team has been number 5. They have three All-Stars, a six-man award winner, a coach of the year candidate, a defensive player of the year candidate, and two All-NBA candidates. They have hopes, and are open about those hopes, of winning an NBA title. They are in a Western Conference that's as open to any team coming out of it as a Western Conference can be. What isn't talked about is that the Jazz have some decisions to make this offseason. Conley will be an unrestricted free agent, and he's played so well this season that the Jazz surely want to bring him back. He clearly has a lot left in the tank. The Jazz have a roster that's in the luxury tax, a new owner in Ryan Smith, and a roster that will be costly to bring back as a repeat tax team in a small market. In a word, It's much easier to sell a repeat tax roster for a team that made a deep playoff run and has shown capability in a playoff setting of winning a title than for a team that bowed out yet again in the first or second round. End quote. So the pressure tightens in general in the playoffs. We all know this. And every so often, a team will be in a situation like Utah is, where the pressure is even more so. Because not only are they playing for this season, and a championship, something that this franchise has never won. But they're playing for the future of this specific team. Uh, They're currently in the luxury tax. and, And as Amex says, it's hard to bring back a team repeatedly that's in the luxury tax, which increases your penalty against the salary cap, in a small market when you are not having playoff success that speaks to the idea that this is a championship contender, which we haven't really felt Utah is in the past. They've had great teams. They've had great playoff runs uh, in the last few years. And as Mitchell and Gobert and Quinn Snyder have been there. But this is the first season that the fan base and the NBA world at large is starting to believe, you know what, with the right breaks, the right matchups, all the stuff that goes into uh, simple random chance, luck, injuries, that kind of stuff, with the right things in place there, this team is a championship contender. This is a very interesting part of the playoffs, one of the most fascinating things for me. uh, When a team is playing not only for this season, but for future seasons, Uh, that's pressure. And it gets ratcheted up, especially after the Jazz lose game one, because they're a big favorite, and because now they don't have home court advantage. And this scrappy, plucky Memphis Grizzlies team that myself included, a, a lot of Fans looked at it and said, eh, the Jazz should be able to roll them even without Mitchell. That wasn't the case in game one. So now the pressure, it ratchets it up. It ratchets is up. And game two last night, the Jazz respond in a way you want a, a team with championship aspirations to respond. They win 141 to 129. And there were a lot of things that I took away from the game sitting there in the crowd. The first thing was the return of Mitchell. Uh, There was all the murkiness that came with Donovan Mitchell's injury for the last month and change in really how it played out between him and his own medical staff and the team medical staff going into game one, where we thought Mitchell was going to play at the last second. Jazz stepped in and said, we don't feel comfortable. You're going to rest a few more days. There was kind of a butting of heads Uh, and It seemed like an unnecessary distraction that the Jazz now are going to have to deal with, Uh, and just another thing thrown on top of this heaping pressure that the Jazz as an organization and the Jazz players are feeling as they try to play for a championship this year and for the future of this team together. So Mitchell returns last night, and he is the emotional shot in the arm that was needed, the dude who gets the loudest cheers in pregame when he's introduced, people are going crazy. Uh, the dude who comes out and within the first few possessions of the game drills his first three pointer, and people are on their feet and they're freaking out. And it's really hard to quantify the emotional boost provided to a team and a home crowd when a player of his caliber returns. Uh, it's just, it, it's almost impossible to quantify. You feel it when you're there, you feel it watching it at home, and the void that Mitchell filled as a scorer and as a creator, that was only part of the puzzle last night. It was just that emotional boost that comes from, hey, I wasn't here in game one, and people were on pins and needles and nervous about what this series is going to be. It's fine. I'm here. I'm going to score 25 points in 26 minutes. I'm going to shoot five for 10 from three something the Jazz couldn't do, period, in game one. And and I'm going to show the offensive leadership that I've shown throughout my tenure with the Jazz. That's what Donovan Mitchell brings back in game one. Uh, And that was immediately clear from the opening tip. Just the simple ability to shoot pull-up threes and and to slice and dice around the court. That's what Mitchell provides. That's what the Jazz need. Uh, The limited time, I, I don't think that was too much to worry about. It seems like the Jazz were being a little more cautious in just throwing him back into the fire and expecting him to play 40 minutes. And I liked a lot of what I saw from him last night. So something to monitor moving forward with the injury, but the first signs of, of him and what he's contributing to this team, even in a limited capacity, uh, they're good. So the real story of the game is not Mitchell's return from injury. That's the boost. That's the shot in the arm. But the substance of the game was Mike Conley, who was everything the Utah Jazz could have hoped for when it comes to a pick-and-roll master, uh, the the maestro who conducts the orchestra, who puts everybody in the correct place on every single possession and then is playing at such an advanced uh, mental level that he always correctly determines when he needs to score, when he needs to distribute. Conley finishes with 20 points. He's 8 for 16 from the field. He's 3 for 5 from 3. He's got a career-high 15 assists. And... I was sitting with my friend and just constantly remarking back and forth. We were just saying, it's astounding watching Conley with the ball in his hands and the level with which he reads a defense continually over and over. They can bring different looks. They can do different things. And Conley always seems like he's a step, of, a step ahead of, of what the defense is trying to do. He understands when an extra defender comes, swing a pass because you have a four on three elsewhere. He understands when he's got somebody who can't stick in front of him, it's time to go to the rim uh, and either do the floater or flip something to go bare for a dunk or throw it cross court for a three. It was Conley at his apex. It was what the Jazz thought they were trading for two off seasons ago when they acquired him. What he had shown for years and years in Memphis, the team that he's now playing. And that Conley wasn't there last year. You know, he, he went through injuries. He went through... Maybe an awkward on-court fit. Maybe an uncomfortability with playing in a new city, with a new franchise, in a new system. And maybe just simple aging. Uh, It made him look a little bit worse than he was. And we never really saw that Conley at any point last year. This year's been the opposite. In the regular season when he's played, he's been one of the most impactful players for the Jazz. He has been what the Jazz wanted uh, when they've seen Donovan Mitchell blossom that secondary score and creator who can take over the game in spurts. And that was really pertinent last night because, again, Mitchell's playing 26 minutes. He's coming off an injury. And it's a lot to ask a player to say, jump back into the fire of a playoff series, a must-win game two, give us 40 minutes, and score 35 points and give us eight assists. That's a lot to ask. And Conley knows that. And so Conley steps up and says, I got this, you know. Mitchell's taking a lot of pressure off of me because now I have that secondary scoring creator and we can work in unison, in balance together with one another. And so Mitchell's going to get his 25. He's going to shoot 50% from three on 10 threes. And I'm going to take over the rest of the game. And I'm going to conduct this offense in a way that Mitchell and Conley both can. And when the Jazz are at their peak, those two are doing that at the highest level. It's a, you take your turn and set up the offense and go, I'll take my turn. And the defense can't really game plan for that. It's too hard. There's too much stress being placed by the simple fact of multiple scorers and creators, Gobert sitting a pick, and people who are willing and able to shoot threes spacing out the court. That's what the Jazz had last night. That's why they score 141 points. That's why their offense at times was virtually unstoppable. It's why they scored at least 36 points in three separate quarters in last night's game. A lot of that comes from how Mike Conley was playing and the system and the structure that the Jazz had put in place to allow him to succeed. So Conley's is the offensive takeaway for me. Uh, he was superb. He was outstanding. And in unison with that, when you get Conley rolling in a manner that he was, uh, the Jazz depth pieces and three-point shooting are really allowed to shine. And they're put in position to pop. Because Mitchell is creating and stressing a defense so much and Conley is doing the same thing. And now you have Gobert at the rim getting really high percentage shots. And you have all of the depth pieces who know how to shoot threes. Royce O'Neal, Joe Ingles, Clarkson, Bogdanovich, go down the list, George Niang; Those guys are now getting open threes. Uh, game one, the Jazz were 12 for 47 from three. It was the story of the game for them on offense. It's why they lost. Uh, It's the volatility that's built into the three-point shot, as I discussed in the show about game one. And game two was the polar opposite. It's this roller coaster that you're going to ride as a Jazz fan throughout these playoffs. Um, They're 19 for 39 in game two. Seven more made threes on eight less threes attempted. And you had depth scoring. Seven different players hit double figures. Conley, Mitchell... Already talked about them. Gobert scores 21. Bogdanovich 18. Clarkson 16. O'Neal and Ingles both with 14. As the team's going 19 for 39 from three, you have that coming from a lot of different areas. You have O'Neal four for six. You have Ingles three for three. Conley's three for five. Mitchell's five for 10, as I stated. Yang's two for four. You have it coming from a lot of areas. And again, this goes back to what the Jazz offense is at their best. And if they want to be a championship contender, and succeed in the playoffs, they're going to rely on these two concepts. The scoring and the creation from Mitchell and Conley, and to a lesser extent, Bogdanovich and Clarkson, and the depth, scoring, and especially three-point shooting that is allowed to shine because of that first part of the equation. Last night, that's what we're getting. Uh, and, And on a night like that, the Jazz are really, really tough to beat. It's hard to beat a team that goes 19 for 39 from three. Um, it's almost impossible if they combine that with any level of defense or any level of attacking the rim and getting free throws or just scoring in the paint in general, Memphis goes eight for 23 from three. So the jazz outscore them by 33 points from the three point line. As I talked about after game one, the jazz have made a living this regular season creating a differential between how many points they're getting from the three-point line versus their opposition. On average, you know, in the regular season, they're getting 15 to 18 extra points per game from the three-point line. the other team has to make that up somewhere. And it's not going to be as mathematically efficient as the Jazz if they are shooting a reasonable percentage from three. And 19 for 39, nearly 50% clip, that's almost impossible to beat. So welcome to life as a three-point shooting team. And again, this is a high point, and we're going to see a low point. Maybe next game, who knows? It's just this. It's a big wave that goes up and down and up and down when you rely on the three-point shot this much. We've seen it in the past with the Houston Rockets in the playoffs. One game, they're world beaters, and they look like no one on Earth can touch them because they make 22 threes, and they run the other team out of the gym. And the next night, they shoot seven for 40, and they look like the worst offense on planet Earth. That's what we're seeing with the Jazz. And that's what they have to know. Hey, stay emotionally stable. You're going to have games like game one. You're going to go 12 for 47 or you're going to shoot worse. Um, And you'll probably lose those games. It's all right. You come back the next game. You stick to the game plan. You get those same shots. And you trust in the fact that you got a lot of good shooters on your roster. And if you shoot enough, those open shots will fall sooner rather than later. That's what we get in game two. Game three, who the hell knows? The rest of the series, who the hell knows? It's just something to always be aware of and to monitor. Sometimes it can be as simple as this team made a lot of threes in this game and they won and and the next game they missed almost all of their threes and they didn't. Uh, That's the jazz. That's how they're constructed and it's something to pay attention to as we move forward in this series and in the playoffs. So the last thing from this game and to me the most interesting part of the series moving forward and one I wasn't fully prepared for It's the defense of the Utah Jazz around, and specifically Rudy Gobert, who is the defense of the Utah Jazz. I guess that's a redundancy. Uh, Against Memphis's ability to score in the restricted area. As I mentioned, they led the league in points in the paint. That is where Memphis wants to go. They are not a high-volume three-point shooting team. They're not a super-efficient three-point shooting team. And in an NBA that kind of skews that way, Memphis has made a living and made the playoffs on their ability to get into the paint and shoot free throws and shoot at a high percentage right there in the restricted area. The number one area that Gobert has shown this is my turf and I'm going to affect everything that happens here. And so you have a strength on strength clash. And in game one, Memphis really took it to Utah. They outscored him 62 to 42 in the paint and Gobert struggled. When he was on the court, he fouled out, he played 25 minutes, and he was significantly less of a factor than Jazz fans have come to expect from him. He was really physically handled in a way that Gobert rarely is. I rewatched the game after watching it live, and, and it really struck me how many spots he was moved off by Valanchunas, and how a lot of the fouls that... Uh, put him on the bench for the game came simply from Valentinus getting a position, sealing him off, and getting Gobert into an awkward spot where he felt compelled to grab or hack or slash. Uh, and to me, it looked like simple, you just need to be better at this thing. Uh, call it hustle, call it keeping your wits about you and understanding angles and where you need to be on the floor. It just seemed like one of those things. And so coming out of game one, the question is, how do you respond if you're Gobert. You're the centerpiece of the Jazz defense, and all of the accolades that come your way in the regular season, they go directly to you. And so, when it goes the other way, when your team struggles on defense, you're going to get the same thing. You're going to get the blowback. It's not going to be, man, Utah doesn't have great perimeter defenders, and Memphis is continually getting in the paint and having these open looks. It's going to be on Gobert. You have to take both of those sides. If you want to give Gobert all of the props for being the backbone of the defense, He's going to have to take the blowback when the Jazz don't play up to their standards on defense. So Gobert was noticeably better in game two. He was active. He was spry. He was in the places that you want Gobert to be. He was creating second chance possessions. He finishes with 21, 13 rebounds, four blocks. Uh, He was doing the active Rudy Gobert stuff that some of it can be quantified in the box score as I'm saying here. And some of it you can't. It's just... I'm there and I'm tipping balls around and I'm being a general pest to the opposition. And he didn't get pushed around down low in a way that he did in game one. He had that block on Morant in the second quarter that I mentioned at the top of the show, that was the moment of the game. And again, something that I really love. It seems like NBA players are so apprehensive of being included on one of these highlights where they get dunked on or they dunk on somebody. And Gobert is not that. And I give him so much credit for being that because people love to piss on Gobert when he gets dunked on by somebody and they go, okay, here's this highlight, you know? And when you watch the jazz, you go, this is pretty incredible and admirable because he's there at the rim every single time. And he's never really shying away. He's just there. And he blocks people sometimes and he gets dunked on other times, but he just keeps coming back. It's that competitive spirit that Gobert brings to the table. And Ja Morant is that. Uh, He was sensational last night. He finished with 47 points. 15 for 26 from the field. 15 for 20 from the free throw line. It was the most points in NBA playoff history by a player aged 21 or younger. Two points more than LeBron James. Uh, He had a stunning performance. And Morant brings that same competitive fire. He's not the dude who goes, I'm a little bit nervous about getting to the rim and, and trying to dunk or trying to finish and get blocked and I'm going to look like a dumbass on social media. He's, he's not that. He goes in and he gets swatted by Gobert. And like I said, I'm standing up and I'm screaming and now my first half bet is going to be cashed and I'm fired up. And as this is going on, I'm just watching him. And Morant, you know, he kind of sidles over to Gobert and he's got a little bit of a grin on his face and he's saying stuff. And, and to me, it was just... Him letting Gobert know, hey, I'll be back. Uh, And that's how those two players work. And that's what has turned into a really fascinating subplot of this series. The two dudes who, they know exactly what they are and what they want to do. John Morant is not going to bomb away from three-point land and beat you in that way, uh, like Donovan Mitchell could. And and Rudy Gobert is not going to go out and and guard guards on the perimeter, or he's not going to go and score 40 points and, and win a game in that way. They both know exactly what they are. John Morant is a relentless attacker of the rim. And Rudy Gobert is a relentless defender of the paint. So we arrive at a place last night where I'm kind of torn as to what to take away from this matchup. And the Jazz defense in general. Because they gave up 129 points. High high amount. And Morant had... Continual success, again, for the second straight game, getting into the restricted area and scoring. From the free throw line in, if you look at John Morant's shot chart last night, he's 13 for 19 in that area. Awesome, awesome, awesome percentage. And you couple that with going 15 for 20 from the free throw line, 20 free throw attempts. And it speaks to a dude who said, I am getting to this area. And until you do something about this and stop me, I'm going to do it. And the Jazz have not been able to stop him. They won last night, and that's great. And if you're the Jazz, you take a win in any way, shape, or form that you can get it in game two. It meant rely on your offense, rely on three-point shooting, rely on Conley, the the pick-and-roll maestro. It was not the Jazz defense that you need moving forward. Uh, The Jazz could win this series playing this style of basketball. The up-tempo, three-point shooting, overwhelm them on offense. Like the Jazz are good enough to beat the Grizzlies doing that. But the Jazz are not good enough to win the title doing strictly that. It has to be this unified effort between your offense and your defense. Uh, The Jazz, who the knock on them in the past and the knock on Gobert has been in the past, you are not as good in the playoffs on defense as you are in the regular season. When teams game plan for you, you are not as effective as you are in the regular season. And the Jazz are saying... That's not fully true, and even if it is, we're going to try to balance it out with this three-point shooting attack that we now have that's better than anything we have and this combination of Conley and Mitchell playing at a level that they haven't played at before until this season. The Jazz defense, which means Rudy Gobert versus John Morant, and this Memphis Grizzlies relentless attack on the paint. Valanchunas there. Dylan Brooks, who played another nice game last night, who also wants to get into the restricted area over and over and over. It speaks to a series that is going to be a lot tighter and a lot more worrisome for the Jazz than we originally thought. Because through two games, Memphis has had continual success doing what they want to do. Get to the paint and score. Get to the free throw line and score. They've done it for two straight games. And the Jazz on defense... This goes back to part of the knock and people's apprehension about them defensively in the playoffs. The Jazz don't have a lot of adjustments defensively that they can throw at you in a playoff series because their structure is very clearly defined. It's Rudy Gobert protecting the restricted area and being a drop-back defender and trying to affect as much stuff as possible there. And when Memphis is continually getting there and scoring... It's something to monitor. And if you're the Jazz and you're being honest with yourself, it's a little worrisome as you look towards the rest of this series and to the playoffs moving forward. So now we have the final takeaway and what I'm looking at for game three on Saturday night where the Jazz are five and a half point favorites. And we're setting the stage for what should be a really compelling and fun basketball game. It's... Strength versus strength. It's the Jazz and their three-point shooting and the volatility that comes with that. Incredibly off game one, incredibly on game two. 1-1 series. Against Memphis, getting into the restricted area and scoring. Good in game one, good in game two. It's still a 1-1 series. These are the two things that are going to dictate what this series is uh, and who wins the series, who is going to perform at a higher level. These are the two things moving forward and this is what I'm going to be watching for on Saturday night. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This podcast can be found on any platform of your choosing. If you could rate and review and help spread the word, it would help me immensely. If you have additional feedback or thoughts that you want incorporated into the show, please email me at chris at thebeehive.com Last but not least, If you would prefer to listen to this as a video, go to thebeehive.com and find No Baller.